You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Exodus chapter 12. If you were with us last week, um, you know we covered the entirety of Exodus chapter 11, and we were talking very specifically about the goodness of God, right? So the, the chapter 11 begins talking about the idea of God ending the suffering of the Hebrews and that he has brought them to the end of this series of plagues. Remember we talked about how Moses and the people really had no idea when that was supposed to end. They were just trusting that eventually Pharaoh was going to listen, even though they were being prepped with the fact that he wasn't going to initially listen, right? And so he brings it to the attention of Moses that, all right, this is, this is it coming to an end now. And so we talked about the sovereign goodness of God, that he knows when to end our suffering. So whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, uh, he brings those, those sufferings to an end in the right time. We talked about his everywhere goodness last week. The idea that God extends his goodness into creation and kind of pushes back against what sinful humanity could be. Remember we talked about how the Egyptians were going to bless God's people as they left Egypt. That God was going to work in sinful, selfish hearts and create this uh, attitude of generosity where they're going to bless the Israelites on their way out. And that's part of God's everywhere goodness. I told you uh, one of the commentators that I'm reading, I think, kind of coined that idea or coined that term. Um, sometimes we refer to it as common grace, but it's the idea that uh, the world isn't as bad as it could be because God's goodness is still infiltrating into aspects of creation. And that's why we see lost people sometimes act good. Sometimes they act with generosity and hospitality that they're not uh, just as evil as they could be. Um, there's certainly pockets and areas of, of certain places where we would see evil more rampant. Uh, but oftentimes we can feel very safe and secure uh, in a lost world at times because of God's goodness uh, kind of overshadowing uh, his creation. And then we talked about his, um, what we called his distinct goodness in that he is going to spare his people from this final plague. Now we're going to talk today about how there's uh, some action points that the children of Israel have to accomplish in order to receive that exemption. But ultimately we talked about how God shows his goodness to his people by the things that he prohibits from happening in our life too. And we can be grateful and thankful for that. Today we look at Exodus chapter 12, and we're just going to look at the first 13 verses of this chapter tonight. So I want to draw your attention to, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. 
In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here's our summary sentence for tonight. And again, we don't have the notes to project, so I'll go slowly if you want to try to write some of it down. The Passover is a defining moment in salvation history. The Passover is a defining moment in salvation history as God's act of passing over his people lays further groundwork for our understanding of why a substitute is needed for us to escape the coming wrath of God as well. The Passover is a defining moment in salvation history as God's act of passing over his people lays further groundwork for our understanding of why a substitute is needed for us to escape the coming wrath of God as well. The Passover is a defining point in history for, for salvation because remember, uh, up to this point, like God is still progressively revealing himself in his plans, right? Like the Hebrews don't have a Bible to go to to read and comprehend Yahweh. They don't have uh, all this written down uh, theology that we have to refer to. So they're, they're very elementary in their understanding of how God works, right? Like there's oral traditions that have been passed down to them, uh, maybe from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and Joseph and his brothers. And as they go into Egypt for that time of captivity and start to, to swell into this nation that's going to exit Egypt, a lot of it's oral tradition, right? And so they're, they're, they're still very elementary in their understanding of how God works and functions. And, and what we have here through the Passover is a, a reinforcement or a continued uh, groundwork that's being laid that helps us to see why a substitute is needed for salvation, right? Like this whole Passover experience is going to point to a substitute for the people that are inside the house, right? As the, as the death angel or the destroyer comes through uh, Goshen and comes through Egypt at night, uh, will he pass over? Will he pass over the house? And what are the grounds for him passing over? Has nothing to do with the morality of the people inside, right? Has nothing to do with whether they've been obedient or not obedient for years previously, right? It's all about whether they have taken the precautions through these instructions to spread the blood on the doorpost. And ultimately, it's the blood on the doorpost that will stand between their sinfulness and God's holiness, Right? So God is teaching them and explaining to them this idea of a substitute. It lays the groundwork for the further instructions that will come as they get out of Egypt into the wilderness. He starts instructing them about the sacrifice system that they're going to follow, both at the tabernacle and at the temple. Right? It begins to, to lay the groundwork for what the Day of Atonement is going to look like. And then in the New Testament, all of that pointing to the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus who most commentators would be able to point out to you how um, he's, he's killed on the cross at the same time that, this, that the Passover lambs would be killed as well in celebration of Passover. Right? We're seeing the groundwork laid in the Old Testament for why we need a substitute. Right? They needed a substitute to escape the 10th plague, to escape the, the coming wrath. We too need a substitute to escape his coming wrath as well.
The Passover becomes a major teaching tool for how we're to understand salvation, how we understand our sin, how we understand God's provision for atonement going forward. And it becomes a reminder to them every year, right? As we get into more of this chapter in coming weeks, we're going to see that there's the idea of them continuing this for years to come, to, to teach the coming generations about what happened on this specific night. So think about it. As they celebrate Passover in the future, it's not that the destroyer or the death angel comes every year and they have to do this to protect themselves, right? They will celebrate it moving forward in the future because it's a remembrance type thing. Remember what happened in the past. It's, it's similar to what we do with the Lord's Supper, right? Like we don't get saved by partaking of the Lord's Supper, right? We're always very clear to teach you guys when we partake of the Lord's Supper here, this is a, an act of remembrance. We're remembering the, the life of Christ. We're remembering the death of Christ. We're remembering our confession of faith in that work of Jesus for salvation, and the supper represents it. It remembers what has already occurred. It becomes a reminder of them every year. The, the bitter herbs that they eat with the lamb would have reminded them of the bitter slavery that they endured. The unleavened bread points to the, the way they had to leave in haste, right? There wasn't time to prepare the bread with yeast. There wasn't time to let the bread rise. There was the, the implication there that we need to be ready to go in a moment's notice. When the release is given, we want to be running from Egypt. This 10th plague is going to become the final blow to the gods of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12 verse 12 says that all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments on. I am the Lord. Remember we talked last week about the cries that would come from the Egyptians as they wake up in the middle of the night or they wake up the next morning seeing their firstborn dead. The crying and the wailing that would have happened. We said the same word is used for what the the Hebrews were doing at the beginning of Exodus, right? They're crying out to God in anguish over their slavery. And what did we say happens when they cry out to God? God hears them. God hears their cries and he acts. What will happen to the Egyptians is they will cry and none of their gods will hear. None of their gods will listen. None of their gods know. None of their gods care, right? The 10th plague is going to become that final blow to the gods of Egypt, God accomplishes what he set out to do, not to just defeat the Egyptian gods, but to break them and to break the demonic representation that's tied to them. We see God's justice in the 10th plague and how it brings judgment on a leader of a people who oppressed God's people relentlessly and who failed to heed warning after warning after warning through the series of plagues leading up to this final act of wrath. Now, what's unique about the 10th the plague, particularly in how it relates to God's people, is that God's goodness is only going to be directed in a salvation-type way towards the Hebrews if they obey his word in faith. Think about it. We've talked about how God made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews previously, right? Plagues were happening in Egypt. Plagues weren't happening in Goshen. God's people were spared, but there wasn't really anything required of them. Now, for them to be spared of this plague, there are going to be instructions given, and they are going to have to follow through on those instructions to be saved, meaning the same threat exists for Israel as it does for Egypt, but a way of escape has been made possible. The destroyer is coming, and he will act unless there is belief. You skip down to verse 23 in this same chapter, it says, For the Lord will pass through 
to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. The Hebrews are under a death sentence. They're in need of a pardon. Their houses will be touched by death unless unless they follow these instructions given. They're under God's wrath too, which may sound odd given how we've talked so much about them being God's people and God hearing them and and responding to their cries. So how can they technically still be under God's wrath and why are they found guilty and why, why do their sins need to be dealt with? Well, think about what they're guilty of. They're guilty of the same things as the Egyptians, right? They're guilty of not listening to God. We saw this in chapter five when Moses shows up and they begin to complain because of Pharaoh's harsh treatment, right? They're not listening to God's word, just like the Egyptians. They're guilty of idolatry. If you look in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, Joshua is still challenging them to give up the gods that they worshiped in Egypt, right? So it's not just the Egyptians that are worshiping these gods that we've talked about, right? Like leading up to this, we've talked about different gods that that God attacks through the plagues. These gods that the Egyptians worship, let's don't lose sight of the fact that the Hebrews are worshiping some of these gods too. It would have been very attractive for them to worship in this way. I mean, this was their culture. This is what they were seeing around them. And so uh, many of them would have been guilty of worshiping these false gods as well. And unless we think that there's any type of innocence in Israel, in Goshen, we're reminded in Romans chapter 3, as Paul builds a case against every part of humanity and why mankind is guilty before before God. It says in Romans chapter 3 verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Egyptians are under sin. Right? They're guilty of sin just because of their heritage with Adam and Eve, like all of us. Right? They're, They're in need of a savior as much as the Egyptians are. They're no better. They're under this death sentence. I think I shared with you last week that if you were to count the deaths in Egypt and Goshen after this night, you'd find that each household has death in it. Every household had death in it. The only question was, was it the firstborn or a lamb? The death count is the same throughout Egypt and Goshen. In the morning, the only question was, who was dead? Was it the lamb that had been slaughtered or was it the firstborn that was claimed? Remember, this whole battle started with Moses going before Pharaoh and telling him, uh, God is speaking to you, and God says that Israel is his firstborn. You let his firstborn go, and if you don't, I'll take your firstborn. And that's where we've seen the whole plague series lead to, God taking the firstborn of Egypt. Let's jump into the text. I want to give you three uh, three aspects of remembrance tonight. As we talk about the Passover, um, This obviously gets far more attention than the other plagues, and so we're going to be talking about the Passover for the next several weeks, which lines up perfectly with where we're going to to Easter in a couple of weeks. And so I'm excited that this will all kind of tie into Easter Sunday when we get there. But three things to remember tonight in relationship to the Passover and what verses 1 through 13 teach us. First of all, number one, we remember salvation reorients your life. Remember that salvation reorients your life, right? It recalibrates our life. Salvation, the Passover, what's happening here in this chapter, it's meant to reorient God's people towards the right things. Look what he says in verse 1. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. The whole calendar system is about to change for Israel. If you're keeping notes underneath our our main heading of Remember Salvation, Reorienting Your Life, number one, the Passover brings new beginnings for God's people. The Passover brings new beginnings for God's people. Life uh, is a life-changing event for God's people. They would never be the same going forward. It's an event marked by a new calendar, a new way of thinking. Now, the Hebrews are going to keep two calendars moving forward. They're going to keep the civil calendar or the worldly calendar, but then they're going to have this religious calendar that God marks and says, the beginning of your religious year starts with the Passover. The Passover, it's the marking of a new year for you, a new beginning. Remember, they came into Egypt as a family, right? About 70 of them. They grow into a nation. And when we see them exit Egypt, there's millions of them, right? A whole mass of them are leaving, and there's a whole new identity and culture that's going to have to be shaped and formed, which is a lot of what happens in the remaining part of Exodus and in the other books of the law It's God creating a culture with his people. How are we going to function and act? We're not going to act like the Egyptians. We're not going to act like the Amorites. We're not going to act like the Canaanites. We're going to have our own way of doing things. And so he creates laws and ways of life for them. But this event is kind of that first life-changing event. Like things are going to be different moving forward. In fact, it's it's a happy new year to you today, Hebrews, as we get ready to leave Egypt. The Passover brings new beginnings for God's people. Number two, the Passover brings new celebrations for God's people as well. We'll see that the instructions are given tonight about what the Passover is going to look like, but in verse 14, which we'll get into next week, it says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now think about it. New people, new nation. Lots of things that they're going to need, right? One of them is holidays. They're going to need their own holidays, right? Up to this point, they're probably guilty of celebrating whatever holidays and celebrations the Egyptians would have had, right? We live in our culture where there's kind of a mixture of religious holidays and national holidays, but for all of us, we look forward to holidays, right? Holidays are a time to remember um, not only Uh, what the holiday represents, but even memories of our family and our friends over the years on those holidays, right? Whether it's Christmas or Easter, uh, Thanksgiving, right? There's a time of remembrance, a time of gratitude, a time of celebration. The Passover becomes the, the Israelites' first official holiday, their first official celebration, their first official feast, The Passover represents their redemption, it represents their salvation, it represents their freedom. I was teaching sixth grade Bible at Trinity years ago. We were going through this, and I I told the kids, I said, you know, in in salvation history for God's people, the greatest redemption story, the greatest salvation story throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament was this story of freedom, the Passover, them leaving Egypt. I said, can anybody tell me, what is, the, what is now the, the, the next greatest or the greatest redemption story that is, that is past Passover, that has, has gone beyond Passover? One kid raised his hand and he said, 4th of July. And I was like, no, 
No, that is a good holiday, and it does represent freedom, but not the ultimate freedom, right? Like, I challenged him. I said, think about Good Friday, and think about Easter, and think about what we celebrate with, with the resurrection of Jesus. That's our release. That's our freedom from sin, right? But, but holidays are, are important because they help us to remember. They give us reasons to celebrate, right? It gives us time to be off work. It gives us time to enjoy family and friends, and, and God wants that for his people, too. He wants them to have this as a nation. We're not going to celebrate the ways the Egyptians did. We're going to give you your own reasons to celebrate. And so this becomes a a first in their life for how they're going to celebrate moving forward. A new people with their own culture will need personal holidays to celebrate. And this becomes a major one for them. Becomes something that they're going to be called to remember. So number one tonight, we remember that salvation reorients our life. It gives us new beginnings. It gives us new reasons to celebrate. gives us new reasons to worship. It's a good reminder to us tonight as believers. Has our life been reoriented? Right? Are we reoriented to the things of God away from the things of our culture? Right? doesn't mean that we're, we're completely removed from our culture. But salvation reorients us towards those things that are most important. God says, your year starts now. This is a new beginning for you a new reason to celebrate. I'm about to give you freedom. Number two, we remember that salvation redirects attention to a substitute. Remember that salvation redirects attention to a substitute. Back in our text, verse three, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Underneath that, number one, the Passover preparations show that bloodlines aren't a substitute. The Passover preparations show that bloodlines aren't a substitute. Israel's not going to be spared by the blood that flows in their veins. The bloodline is not going to protect them from this plague. They may have a, a, a descendants of co- as being covenant people, right? Like they trace their history to Abraham. They're part of God's covenant people. But that bloodline is not going to save them on this night. Being a Hebrew, being a Jew, it's not going to protect them from God's wrath. Remember in the New Testament how the New Testament authors will talk about how uh, not all Israel is true Israel. Right? It's those who are of faith that are really God's people. That's the picture that's happening here. Yes, these people are Hebrews. Yes, they live in Goshen. Yes, they've been protected from the other plagues. But now there's a, there's a point in time where they're going to have to act in faith, that their bloodline is not going to save them. Now, this is important for particularly our children tonight, our youth tonight, to hear me on this, that that you being born into a Christian home doesn't save you, right? Having mom and dad be believers and bring you to church every Sunday, that doesn't save you. Bloodlines won't protect us from God's wrath. God God won't won't spare us because of our family heritage. If If he would, then they didn't need to shed the lamb's blood this night. They could just say, hey, you know what? We're Abraham's seed. We're Abraham's offspring. We're good. God says, no, a different type of blood's going to have to be shed. The blood that flows through you, that's not going to be sufficient to spare you in my holiness when I come into your camp. He says, blood's going to have to be shed instead. 
Israel's not going to be spared by bloodline alone on this plague. They're going to need God's grace and his provision through a substitute. So salvation redirects our attention to a substitute, takes the attention off of us, off our good works, off our morality, and points it to a substitute who stands in our place. Secondly, the Passover preparations show that perfection is the only substitute. Perfection is the only substitute. Man, as I was reading this yesterday and just jotting down some notes as I was studying, you look back in our, in our text in verse 4. Right? They're told to take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Verse 4 says, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each man can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. So as I'm reading this yesterday, I'm just kind of jotting down bullet points. This is what they were required to do. And I'm sipping on like a Coke at Chick-fil-A, eating a chicken biscuit, and I'm writing these things down, and I'm thinking, this is so casual. Like, would have been really different if Moses was giving me these instructions because, like, a death angel's coming by my house tonight, right? Like, as he's, as he's saying things, I would have been like, like, give it to me, and I got to get it dead on right. Like, the, the death angel's coming. Like, I don't want to miss any details here, right? Because you start to read this, and it's like, all right, you got, you got to get a lamb, and you got to have the right amount of people in your household where the whole thing gets eaten. And, and, if, and if the lamb's too big for your family, you need to invite another family in there so that y'all can kind of share it because we need one lamb for the, for the amount of people that can eat it, right? So it's real specific about how many people the lamb counts for. Then you've got to... Um, you got to find one that's without blemish, a male, one who's a year old. You can make it a sheep or a goat. you got to get it on the 10th day. Then we're going to keep it for four days, and then we're going to kill it at twilight. Man, like just think about like the, the, the kind of the anxiety and pressure you might have felt like, boy, we got to get this right. Like, Give me those instructions. Let's repeat those. I want to make sure I've got that down to the detail. I don't want to get this wrong, right? Then they're going to take the blood and they're going to put it on the doorpost. So many things are being listed off here and it shows us the the perfection of the lamb. Like all of a sudden the attention is off the people and it's on the sacrifice. The destroyer's coming, but the lamb can provide a safe shield if done correctly. The lamb must account for everyone in the house. Make sure you measure well. Everyone must be included because everyone needs this. Nobody's exempt from being covered by the lamb's blood. Nobody's exempt from being in the house, right? The lamb must be a male, a year old, without blemish. He must be perfect. Now, you can read in Leviticus chapter 22 and Malachi chapter 1, both those chapters later give even more detail about the specifics regarding the perfection of the sacrifice and how if you bring anything less than this, it's no good, it doesn't work, it's not helpful, God's angry at you for it. Right, because, because you're giving him less than your best. It must be taken on the 10th day and killed on the 14th day. I don't know exactly what's happening there, but my mind began to kind of think through what this would look like even in my own house. Right? Let's say I bring home a cute one-year-old lamb right, and bring it into the house, and I say, A.J., Abram, Mally, Poe, we're going to take care of this little lamb. Right? And you guys are going to feed it, and you're going to play with it, and you're going to take care of it. And then four days later, I take it from him and say, and now we're going to kill it. Right? Like, my kids' hearts would be broken. 
right? Like they, like they would be like shattered over that. I mean, my kids get a puppy in hand and like they think it's theirs and they're ready to keep it forever. Like they, they fall in love with animals very quickly. I think this was intentional because I think it creates an awareness of the, the travesty of sin, right? The, the kids in the household would have like had long enough to grow fond of this lamb and then it's taken, right? And my kids would be angry with me like, daddy, don't do this. And, and imagine the conversations of saying like, it's either the lamb or AJ, right? AJ's the firstborn in our house and, and the angel's coming tonight, right? Hopefully my kids would say, take the lamb, right? <laughs> Pending the day, there might be some discussion as to whether AJ or the lamb, right? But most days I'm thinking that everybody in the house would say, okay, like the lamb instead, right? But it would have created that understanding of substitute, right? Like, wow, this is what could happen. This is what will happen instead, right? We love this little lamb, but we've only had it four days. We've had AJ for a lot, far longer. We love him infinitely more because he's a human, right? He bears the image of God. But there would have been an attachment probably to this animal. Now they have to kill it, and, and they're, they're gaining in their understanding of what a substitute means. They're gaining in their understanding of their sin, the holiness of God and how they stand before him in their sin and how there needs to be protection there's got to be blood that stands between the two. The lamb is to be eaten entirely after roasting it. Don't eat it raw. Can't imagine that you had to tell people that, but apparently you did. Don't boil it, right? I think that was probably because uh, the, the, the bones were to remain unbroken, right? Like we've, we've, we, we know this when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and how his bones weren't broken. He remained perfect throughout the sacrificial part, right? Like there was no blemish. And so I think even in this picture here, there was to be no breaking of the bones to fit it into a pot to boil it. Instead, we're going to roast it so that it stays intact. The sides were to include bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Super specific as to how this is all to play out. We know in the New Testament, the lamb points us to a greater substitute. A greater Passover lamb who is Jesus. 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 7 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may uh, be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus is our Passover lamb, which this story then gives us a better understanding of our own salvation, right? Um, he ends the need for ongoing lambs as well. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, right? The sacrifices were offered year after year after year. Kids would have to go through this, this uh, tragedy of getting close to a lamb and having to sacrifice the lamb year after year after year. Daddy, when will this stop? Daddy, when will we not have to do this anymore? And Jesus comes and he puts an end to it. No more animal sacrifices needed. The animal sacrifices would have helped the people see there's an insufficiency in this blood, too. It's a temporary blood, but it doesn't cover completely, doesn't wipe it away fully. Right? We have to keep doing this over and over and over again. When Jesus comes, that's ended. No more sacrifice is needed. He is the perfect sacrificial lamb. He is the Passover lamb for us because he's without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin or deceit. Despite being tempted thoroughly, Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted just as we are yet without sin. He's examined and found guiltless. Remember John 19, 6, Pilate, in the cries of crucifixion, says, I found no guilt in this man. 
because he is without blemish, Hebrews 9.14 tells us. We want to remember that salvation reorients our life to things that are most important. New beginnings, new celebrations. We also want to remember that salvation redirects our attention to a substitute, takes the focus off of us and puts it on the substitute who stands in our place. And then lastly, number three, we remember that salvation requires faith in action. Remember that salvation requires faith in action. Back to our text. After the preparations are made, let me get back to Exodus. All the instructions are given. Preparations are made. They're told to put the blood on the doorpost, to eat, to wait. It says, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. All the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I'm the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. The blood is meant to be a sign for the people. I put in my notes, number one, the Passover climax points sinful eyes to the blood of another. The Passover points sinful eyes to the blood of another. This way of escape, it's communicated to God's people, but the people have to do something with this content. They have to do something with the instructions. They have to follow through with it. They must appropriate the substitute to themselves by taking action. Even if they killed the lamb and did everything but spread the the blood on the doorpost, they would have experienced death in their house. It's not that God needed the, the doorpost to be marked so that he knew who were his people and who weren't. The intention is to bring our focus on the blood and the fact that the blood needed to be shed for the sins to be passed over. The way of escape is communicated. The people must do something with that content. The lamb's blood is to be spread on the doorpost. It becomes a sign and waiting of what will ultimately stand as credentials for the Passover. Notice it's not the good works, the morality of the people that is going to allow that death angel to pass over. It's the blood of this blem- without blemished lamb that will be the thing that, that stands in the way of God's holiness and his wrath interacting with man's sin. It's to be spread on the doorpost. Think about this. Every Hebrew, regardless of personal integrity, regardless of morality, is passed over in the same manner. Only the blood of another will do. Think about that. There would have been better people in the Hebrew camp than others, right? We've we've said that some of them probably were fully ingrained in worshiping Egyptian gods. Others maybe had remained as true as they could be to the oral traditions of Yahweh, right? So when Moses shows up and is talking about the burning bush and Yahweh, they'd have been like, amen, I've been waiting for this. Like, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the only one I've prayed to since we got here, right? Like, you would have had varying degrees of faithfulness probably in the Hebrew camp. There's not a group of them that are exempt from this, right? Like, it's not, hey, those of you that have been worshiping Yahweh, you don't need to do this lamb thing. Those of you that have been worshiping the Egyptian gods, you definitely have to do this, right? No, it's everybody has to do this. Everybody's sinful. Everybody gets saved the same way this night. 
same for us too. Man, tonight we are represented by a whole host of different backgrounds, personalities, and experiences. Some of you were uh, uh, called to follow Christ in the first years of your life. Some of you were called to Christ much later in life. And there's scars and, and, and memories and sins that were committed in a life before Jesus that maybe would have been tempered or even avoided had you followed Christ earlier. It doesn't matter when we come to follow Christ. We all come the same way. We're all saved exactly the same way through the shedding of Jesus' blood. None of us can stand and none of us can be passed over on the grounds of anything but the substitute. doesn't matter how good these Hebrews had been, they all have to spread this blood on the doorpost to be passed over. Israel trusted in the blood. They put the blood on the doors. It was an act of faith, believing God's word. They followed all of the instructions. They obeyed his commands to choose and kill a lamb, to smear the blood on the door, to remain in the house, and by doing so, they would be saved. We have no indication that anybody didn't follow these instructions. We know if they didn't that the the destroyer was going to come into their house, but it seems to be that everybody followed the instructions, that they acted in faith, they obeyed the commands. We read over it so quickly, though. Imagine the tension that was probably felt. I don't know how close they were to Egypt. I don't know if they could hear the cries of those Egyptian people waking up and realizing death had hit their house. Imagine, though, the, the, the anxiousness maybe that would have set in, like, the sun hasn't come up yet. Like, has he passed over our house yet? Like, we did everything that we were asked to do. The blood is there. We can see it. Like, like it's a visual to us. Our, our eyes are being pointed to this. They obeyed his commands, and the people's anticipation to be seen in the ways... Um, the people's anticipation sorry the people's anticipation can be seen in the ways they gird themselves for departure too this is another sign of their faith right they're told to to do all this and then to eat kind of standing up eating and you may have had this before like you're you're telling your kids like hey we got somewhere to be and we got to eat quick and so we're not even going to sit down at the table like everybody eat let's put our dishes away as quick as we can like we got to go that's the picture that's kind of given to them you eat in anticipation that we're leaving tonight. Like we are exiting this place after 400 years. Tonight is the night. All right, they're to be dressed. They're to be ready. Their belts are to be on. Their shoes are to be on. Their staff is to be in hand. This is their faith in action. The Passover points sinful eyes to the blood of another. Secondly, the Passover points God's wrath to the blood of another. The Passover points God's wrath to the blood of another. God ultimately provides what he requires. He makes the escape from his wrath possible by communicating how to escape it. The blood serves as a sign that another has died in the place of the firstborn. It's what we call propitiation. It's a big fancy word for God's wrath being satisfied or God's wrath being turned away. The penalty has been executed on another. We sit here tonight, and we sit here in comfort. We sit here in assurance that the death angel has passed over us and will continue to pass over us. And when Jesus returns, we will be spared from his wrath because God's wrath has already been poured out on Christ on our behalf. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. 
want to read to you just a few of these verses that talk about the blood of Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. His blood shed on our behalf. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The last one, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, right? You can't buy your way out of this, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The three things to remember from verses 1 through 13 of chapter 12 tonight. We remember that salvation reorients our life. He gives us new beginnings and new reasons to celebrate, just as he did Israel back during this time. We remember that salvation redirects our attention to a substitute. And tonight's just a big reminder that however good you think you are, you aren't, right? And we're so, we're so prone to be prideful even after our salvation with the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We're still so prone to become prideful in our own sanctification, right? Tonight's a reminder And we need the reminder. We need to be reminded. We need the gospel to speak to us regularly that it's the substitute who saves us, not our own good works. It's the substitute who saves us. The reason that's important for us to remember is it's because how other people get saved too. And we'll talk about that here in a minute with our application. But we remember that salvation redirects our attention to a substitute. And then lastly, we remember that salvation requires faith in action. Requires faith in action. There were instructions given about how to act in faith. I told you, if it had been me, I'd have been writing it down meticulously. Like, I don't want to miss these details. I want him to pass over me. We should have that same attention today with God's instructions. Shouldn't be any less urgent, right? Like, we need to have our faith in action as well. Which leads me to two application questions to give you as we leave tonight. Two application questions that I want you to ponder in response to what we've seen tonight. Number one, is your life meticulously marked by faithful readiness to obey God and His Word? Is your life meticulously marked by faithful readiness to obey God and His Word? That's how the people in Goshen were marked. They were marked as people who were ready to express their faith, right? They, they, they marked themselves with the blood on the door. They marked themselves by being ready to leave, ready to depart, meaning they followed everything that God told them to do, and then they were ready for more, right? If we're not careful, we're the type of people who get saved, right? We put our faith and trust in Jesus, and then we go to sleep, right? Like, they weren't told to eat your Passover meal and then go to sleep and rest knowing that the, the angel's going to pass over. No, it was be ready for action, right? Be ready to follow him wherever he says to go. 
He's going to come in, a, in the form of a cloud and in the form of fire, and, and the Israelites are going to follow him. And we want to be the type of people we're saved, right? We've been spared by God's wrath, but we want to be ready for action. We want to be ready to move. We want to be ready to be faithful. And my challenge would be for you to think about how meticulous are you being in trying to carry out the instructions that are given to us. I have no doubt if there was fear of a, of a, of a Passover tonight with an angel coming into our town and I gave you instructions about how to be spared, you'd write them down and you'd carry them out as meticulously as you could. And we ought to keep doing that in obedience. We ought to, be keep, ought to keep doing that in readiness to follow the God who saved us. Second application question. Is your interaction with others reflecting your belief that a substitute is the only way to be passed over by his coming wrath? Is your interaction with others reflecting your belief that a substitute is the only way to be passed over by his coming wrath? What does that mean? It means that if we really genuinely believe that a substitute is the only way to be saved, we have to communicate that to other people. And I'm thankful for Sarah and Aaron who are going to go to Zambia tomorrow to to help encourage people who are laboring over there to, to communicate this truth to people who don't know it. Right? That's why we have missions, because, because worship doesn't exist in sinful hearts. Until sinful hearts are rescued and saved, until they see that they have to accept a substitute, that their, their good works and their sacrifice and everything they try to do, it won't amount to anything when the Passover time comes. Right? When the time when Jesus comes back, the only thing that will save us is if we are marked by the blood of Jesus. If we truly believe that, it impacts the interaction we have with coworkers, with family members, with friends. Man, I'm prone to, to default into thinking that some people are just kind of good people and I don't feel any urgency to, to think otherwise or to say otherwise to them. Right? And, and I would never verbalize it, but I live and function as though they'll probably be okay. Like there's a whole lot of other people that are worse than those people. They'll probably be okay. And they won't be. Even the best of Israel wasn't going to be okay without the blood spread on the doors. Do we believe that? Do we believe a substitute is necessary? If we do, it changes how we interact with other people. Is your life meticulously marked by faithful readiness to obey God? And is your interaction with others reflecting your belief that a substitute is the only way to be passed over by his coming wrath? Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you for your salvation. We thank you that you made a way of escape. Lord, we know that we are sinful. We know that we fall short of your glory and your honor. And we know that we can't atone for that work ourselves. There's nothing that we can do. There's no list that we can check off. There's no good work that can be done to earn your forgiveness. God, remind us of that regularly. We need the gospel to speak to our hearts about that often. Lord, we thank you for the substitute, Jesus, who is the perfect Passover lamb, who makes it possible for us to be spared. God, help us to communicate that to those around us. Help us not to, to fall prey into thinking that someone's goodness will excuse them on the day of judgment. But Lord, help us to be the type of people who don't just enjoy the Passover lamb and enjoy the feast and, and then go to sleep. Lord, we want to be people who are, who are faithfully ready to obey you at all times. We want to live our life with staff in hand, 
We want to be meticulous when we read the Bible, when we hear the Bible taught, when we hear instructions being given, that we want to carry it out. We want to carry it out to every detail. Not because we're trying to earn favor with you, but because we want to respond that way. We want to, we want to act in faith because we believe everything that you say. Just like these people would have believed that a death angel was coming through their camp, and if they didn't follow everything meticulously, they were going to lose a life in their house. Lord, we want to be meticulous in the ways that we carry out your plans because we believe them to be true. We believe them to be good. Because you'd empower us to do that with your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.